he'd have lost his bride. But he loved his bride so much he was willing to die a death for her. Just a thought. Okay? You know, he he wanted she's the one that messed up, yes, but he also messed up with her. And yeah, I, I realize that things might have been different, but he also loved his bride so much that he's willing to die for her. Doesn't that look like something else that happened in the New Testament? Huh? So there's another way of looking at things. There's always two ways. All right. Great grace, John, the first chapter, verses 10 through 18. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh, dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake, he that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me, and of his fullness have all we received in grace for grace. Look at that, in grace for grace. grace is a big thing. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Acts 4, 31 through 33. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that ought the things of which he possessed was his own, but they all had things in common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And everybody say, great grace. Great grace was upon them. You may be seated in Jesus' name. I know you have uh, stood for quite a while. Verse 433 of Acts, uh, again, it says, With great power made the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them. Uh, we're starting a series on principles. Um, someone raise your hands and tell me what a principle is. What is a biblical principle? Raise your hand good and high. Don't just speak it out. If someone doesn't, I'll just call on the one who looks the most intelligent. Okay. What? Laws to live by? Pretty much. How can you define a principle, though? What is a principle? Charles, you're a Bible school man. Principles are great things because if you live by biblical principles, you won't have that that uh, roller coaster ride in your relationship with God. Because sometimes people live, and living for God, they live by feelings and by sight. Principles, principles will keep you level and balanced. Okay? Biblical principles will keep you balanced. Uh, I, and let me just give you one. I think it's all easy for us to, to understand this one because all of us have, have dwelt there. You know, the Bible says God will provide your needs according to his riches and glory. Now, that's a, a direct scripture. And that principle, the principle of that is throughout the scripture. You see it in the New Testament. You see it in the Old Testament. That principle is there. Uh, but when we are in need... And we go by feelings. Things are not working out. Uh, we don't have enough to, to make it. We, you know, how are we going to buy groceries, pay our bills, whatever it may be? Uh, we have to live by that principle that we know that God provided throughout the Scripture for His people. We live by it. We don't live by the fact that we've got an empty wallet and an empty checkbook. We live by the fact that God said He would do this. We live according to that principle. If we do that, we don't go the up and down. Now, I know that's difficult. But how many people have had God provide for you when you didn't really think you could make it? 
Okay. So we know that it works. It's just, it's living by that keeps us from going on that roller coaster of up and down, up and down, the way so many people do. So we, so principles are great things. And, and uh, you know, like, uh, just, just for instance, another one. Uh, one of the oldest scams in the scripture was, was perpetrated on Isaac. And, and that was because Isaac trusted his feelings rather than his knowledge. And you see that in Genesis 27:22. And Jacob went near unto Isaac, his father, and he felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. Isaac knew it was the voice of Jacob. He knew that. But he was fooled by Jacob's deception that capitalized on Isaac's lack of vision. You see, if we have a lack of vision... We can be fooled by the things the devil throw at us. Society today, the way we're living right now, if you look at it, what are we going to do? I, I don't know whether you've come to this realization or not. We talk a lot about it. It's a great thing about people is they come to church and they talk about we're going to depend on the God. We're going we're to depend on God. We're going we're gonna to go to heaven. We're, gonna, we're, we're looking forward to it. You talk about the rapture of the church and everybody shouts. And we talk about walking on streets of gold and, and gates of pearl and walls of jasper and everybody shouts. But when it comes to doing it and getting to the point where we are looking right at it, and this world, you know, the old song, this world is not my home, I'm just passing through. But we still like to cling to this world and all the goodies that are in the world. But the, the fact remains that we are living at that time now when we must trust God and not rely on what we feel. Now, I know some people, I, I, feel, I feel good. I don't depend on goosebumps running up and down my back. I like it when I'm in a worship service. I like it when I'm anointed. But do I depend on God because He gives me goosebumps? You know, you get the chills when you're really in, into it in your worship and you get chills running up and down your spine. And you decide, well, if I could live like this all the time, then, then I could live for God. Well, that's, not, that's a feeling, friend. That has nothing to do with the reality of God's Word. It's not going to be goosebumps and chills the rest of your life. Some of you guys remember the first time you kissed your wife? Goosebumps and chills. After 40 years, do you still get it? Now, don't answer that. Do you understand what I'm saying? Of course, I do. I do. Just be sure we get that straight. No one says the wrong thing here. <laughs> the church in the book of Acts serves and still does as a pattern for every group of believers since. Everyone. Since their time, since their inception. That church gives us examples of the new birth experience. They demonstrated effective evangelism. They displayed an attitude of, of generous giving, allowed the Holy Spirit to work through believers, and verified that they were true believers through signs and wonders. Now, this first church earned the right to be considered the model for every future generation. And from the focus verse that I read to you in Acts 4... Uh, this, we see that, that another, there's another admirable quality of, among the early believers, and it's called great grace. And it says great grace was upon them, all of them. And we, we, we generally think of grace, and you, I preached on grace. I like talking and preaching on grace because grace is just 
grace. It's a wonderful thing. But there's a lot of a variety of, of beliefs concerning grace. And we're gonna, you know, we're gonna define it. We're gonna define it a little bit more. Of course, we know it's the unmerited favor of God. That is one definition. Robertson's definition of grace, and it is Robertson's definition, is opportunity. Because grace gives us opportunity to be saved. Grace doesn't save us outside us acting on the opportunity of salvation by faith. Okay, we're going to talk about that, but but that's that's my definition. And we go on. So so they had great grace, and in the in the New Testament, grace through faith is contrasted with the rigorous regulations demanded in the Old Testament. The Old Testament, uh, there was regulations, there was laws that had to be lived, and and you had to abide by them. But grace, grace was a contrast to this, and 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 certainly the grace that that brought us salvation is the highest expression of God's love for us. But still, the term grace has various uses, and we, I mentioned it earlier, the unmerited favor of God, my definition of, of, of opportunities. But the, the strong Hebrews Greek dictionary uh, descriptively defines it as the divine influence upon the heart and its reflection in the life, including gratitude, joy, liberality, and graciousness. It is the divine influence on the heart. And you see, that fits with every other definition. It's God's influence on us individually. That's what grace really is. And the early church had received God's redemptive grace. But the, uh, the Bible commentators indicate that the, that the great grace, and we've heard that. I've heard that preached. And What was great grace? What, how can there be a difference? But there was a difference, and, and they mention it in Acts, that that early church had great grace. That great grace allowed them to have uh, signs and wonders. There was people that, that walked by those early church members that had gone through the upper room, the 3,000 on the day of Pentecost, that, that saw them and saw God's work in them to such a degree that it influenced them to come. Because that's why that they say the Jerusalem church was some 80,000 members in that one church because of the great grace that was on those early church members, those early church people, those that had, had received salvation. And that that great grace caused people to, to many sinners to be amazed by what God was doing and were eager to become a part of that church. And you can see that in Acts 2.47. And this is the challenge from the Scripture, not only to be saved by the grace of God, but also grow. The Bible says to grow in grace and truth. There's a possibility of growing into great grace. Now, I, I could probably stop right here and we could talk about this the rest of the time that I have. How can we do that? What, what, what makes that work in our lives? I, I believe there's a humility. There's a desire to please God. You see all kinds of things roaming, roaming through uh, the United Pentecostal Church, the Assemblies of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's all kinds of, uh, of gimmicks. And Sorry, I don't use the term gimmicks, but it is gimmicks in its way. You know, do this, teach this particular Bible study, you'll fill your church up. The Bible should fill the church up without any gimmick on a particular Bible study. The Bible is what does it, not just our ability to present that. Okay, it's God that does it. You know, it's not a matter of, 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 of Eldar laying hands on people and, and, and seeing, them, seeing them healed. And all of a sudden you throw out a sign out there that says Eldar heals. Now, does Eldar heal or does God heal? You understand what I'm saying? We get that feeling 
that it's all about personalities and not about God. So how does great grace, uh, how does it happen? It's because they were willing to just give up everything for the, for the fact that they wanted to do God's work and God's will. It wasn't about individuals and personalities, though some of it did come about later. But still at the beginning, the inception of the church, it was about Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And that's what allowed great grace to grow in that church. Now, by Adam's, it was talked about either, by Adam's disobedience to God in the Garden of Eden, he lost his created state of innocence and passed his fallen state of, of, of mortality to mankind. And none of us can, can change the fact that we are the descendants of Adam. None of us can do that. So we inherited his nature. This morally corrupt fallen nature motivates us to sin. And this is not to suggest that we're guilty of sin solely because of Adam's transgression. Rather, we're guilty because we have personally done wrong. Do you understand, those of you that have been around, that a dog barks? Was that a revelation? A dog barks because of what? They're a dog. A cat claws because he is or she is a cat. The nature of a dog is to bark. The nature of a cat is to claw. The nature of man is to sin. I believe it's Romans, I think it's 323, all men have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's just the nature of us. It's not just about because Adam sinned, it's in our nature. Yes, we've got that nature, but it's in our nature. It's what we do. We are pagans. And we like to sin. Just like a dog likes to bark. My oldest grandson's got this. He's obsessing about wanting a coon dog. I used to do that stuff. And I said, you don't want a coon dog. I said, you don't want to listen all night to that thing bark. I said, you don't want to do. Oh, yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. I said, you can't take care of the two dogs that you've got. How, why do you want a coon dog? Oh, he's going to go out and make a million dollars and chase raccoons. <laughs> so regardless, that's his mother's and father's problem, not mine, thank God. But I tried to discourage him from it, you know, and do my best. I told him yesterday, I said, you're going to have to sell everything. I said, you've got to sell all this junk that you got, that you play with. And I said, to buy this coon dog. He said, that's okay, I'll sell it all. It's like his grandmother. All right. <laughs> In contrast to, to mankind's sinfulness, God is righteous. He is without sin. Whether by action, motive, or thought, all his ways are right and perfect. His character is flawless, and his record is impeccable. God is incapable of sinning. He is the model of perfection and the example to whom we should look. And we, you know, we can see that throughout the Scripture. Psalm 71, 19, 119, 137 through 138. All tells us about that nature of God. And because God is righteous, he cannot condone sin. He can't. He can neither tolerate wickedness among his creation nor ignore his presence. He is obligated by his righteous nature either to destroy that which is wicked or to take action to make that which is wicked right. You understand that? He has to do something with wickedness. It's in his nature. He cannot do anything else. 
So God graciously determined not to destroy his creation, but to make a plan of redemption available to all mankind. However, many people reject God's grace, and that is grace. Grace. I mean, we can understand grace by that period of time that we're still covered on our insurance after we failed to pay the premium. That's grace. We have this little bit of time afterwards. We're failing. We've got so many days that we're still covered. If we don't get that thing in there after that day's over with, that last day, then we're no longer covered. And if we go out and have a wreck in your new Porsche, then you're in a mess. So you have to pay for it yourself. So, so, we, so, we, so we look at this. This is what grace, God has given us this opportunity, this 2,000 plus years that we have since, the, since Calvary. It's a grace period that we have to, by faith, enter into salvation. It's through that. You're not just saved because grace exists, though we are saved by grace. But grace in itself, grace comes into us through, well, and I'll get there, through the fact that we tap into God. Let, 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 me, let me look at let, let me give you one more. God's love and God's grace is a boomerang effect. Grace came through Calvary. It's around us. God's unmerited favor. We walk around, we know we need to do something about our salvation. We know we need to, you, you remember how that was? You walked around, you knew you weren't right with God. You were concerned that, that things were going to stop. You looked at the world and you knew that if you didn't do something that you were going to be lost. If God came tomorrow, you were lost. What do I do? Grace is doing that to you. The boomerang effect. And then by faith. You're saved by grace through faith. That and not of yourself is the gift of God, not by works, lest any man should boast. So faith reaches up to grace that has come down, the boomerang effect, and brings down salvation or taps into salvation. It's a better term. So that's the boomerang effect. You can't be saved just by faith. Let me ask you this question. Why can't a man be saved just by faith? Anybody want to raise your hand and give me an answer for that? Why can't a man just be saved by faith? Go. Okay. But faith also, without grace, is works. I can't believe without grace. I'm believing. If I was saved just by faith without grace, then it would be on my works. I'm just believing hard enough to make God happen, but it was by, make God save me. But it was by grace that salvation was given. That is the boomerang effect. That's why grace is so essential. It's through Calvary. Just faith alone, just believing. Without grace would be non-effective whatsoever. That's why even we believe, we believe God for healing. It's grace that gives us the healing, but it's faith that taps into it. Faith alone would not tap in and, and, and grab the resources of God the way it should be. Now, let, let, me, let, me, let me take it one step further. You might better understand this. Let's, uh, uh, or actually, you might better understand God's decision to follow through with his creative plan through the analogy of an architect who was designing a multifamily apartment complex. And one night, the architect was awakened by a, a horrifying nightmare in which a fire ravaged the building and many lives were lost. And his thoughts troubled him to the point that he considered 
canceling the project. However, people need the place in which to live, so he incorporated into the design the most remarkable fire escape that he had ever considered. With this new plan, he was now conscientiously free to proceed with the creation of the complex. So the architect had to build in an escape plan. That's what God did for us. He knew what the end was going to be, so he built in an escape plan. That's what grace did for us. Now, let, let, let's, let's, let's go a little bit further with this. Salvation. Well, let me. I, I've got some scriptures I need to read here. I, I just talked to you. We're saved by grace. However, grace does not save us apart from the faith in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2 8, just bring it up and they can read it behind me. I'm moving ahead because I'm enjoying this and I'm going too fast. Uh, also, the, uh, this, this act of God makes it possible for all to have enough faith to respond to God in a positive way. Now, thinking about this, what did God do for us in, at birth? God did at birth give us, and I spoke about this the other day, the, a measure of faith. All of us have the faith to tap in to the grace of God. All of us do. We've given the measure. After we've tapped in to the grace of God, God has filled us with his wonderful spirit. We've been baptized in his name. We've repented of our sins. Then we grow in faith, the fruit of faith, the gift of faith. We grow in these areas. But every man, through God's grace, has been given a measure of faith in order for us, again, the boomerang effect, to tap in to the grace of God. We're all been given that. So God is gracious in this. So uh, we can look at this in, in uh, Romans 5.8. I think you have that one. I think also, did I give you Acts 18 and 7? Okay, give me both of those. But God commendeth his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's grace. Go on. Next one. And when he was disposed to pass into Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him, who when he was come, helped them much, much, which had believed through what? Grace. We can't believe unless we have grace. There's no faith without grace. Because God's grace give us the measure of faith at birth. Everyone has. That, that's the reason people walk around looking for, for ways out. They know they know God has given us through, through his creative act. He has given us this, this desire through grace, this desire to, to be saved, to know that there's more to life than just what we're living here. A great deal more to life. He knows that. And so he gives us this wonderful grace in order for us to tap into it through faith. So, so faith or grace allows a measure of faith. Faith taps into grace, and we're saved as a result of it. Opportunities. Now, moving further. In the New Testament, those of the Jewish faith tried to prove salvation by association. You see, this, there's a lot of people that still do that. There's a lot of kids, there's a lot of preacher's kids out there that are not in the church that feel like just because their mommy or daddy is a preacher that they're going to be saved automatically. That's how the Jews believed. They were the offspring of Moses, Abraham, all of these. You know, they were the offspring of these. So just by association through the law of Moses, through the, the descendants of Abraham, that they were going to be saved. And so, so by that, you know, they, they tried to prove just by association, I'm fine. There's nothing wrong with me because I am a descendant of Abraham. The Jews believe that, and some Jews still believe this to this day. Now, they were saved by the rituals of the law, and, and particularly circumcision and teachings of the prophets. And to them, 
And these were signs of their having the favor of God. And Jesus challenged them with, with strong warnings. And Paul also confronted their hypocrisy in his letter to the Romans. And Paul explained that the Jewish nation was at a disadvantage to the Gentile nation by having the law of Moses. Now, why did Jesus make that comment? And he did make that comment. Romans 3, 1 through 24, we're not going to go there. It's a, it's a chapter. But it explains that. He said that the Jews were at a disadvantage to the Gentiles. Because they had the law of Moses. Anybody? Why would they be at a disadvantage? Think about it. Pretty simple. Anybody? Go ahead. They what? Well, it didn't allow, but also law pointed out sin. It pointed out sin. It let them know they were sin. The, the pagan Gentiles, they were just nasty. They didn't know right from wrong. But you see, when you know right from wrong, it makes it a little worse. These pagan, the, you know, the Jews, they knew, you know, they, they fought through. They were trying, you know, constantly killing a lamb, constantly killing a bullock, constantly uh, a dove, you know, or, or something to try to cover their sins, and they were fighting a losing battle. But they knew law defined sin. And they were at a disadvantage because it was defined. You know, it's something when a person tries to live for God without God's Spirit, it's very similar to what we're talking about right now. You know something is wrong. This is the reason a lot of times holiness groups without the Spirit of God have a problem. Because without the Spirit of God, they're defining. Their sin is defined. They understand sin. But what happens is they're fighting this battle without the Spirit of God. Thus, they become self-righteous. And they look at you and won't hardly talk to you because they don't want to be associated with anything that might cause them to fall off their pedestal. Even Pentecostals do the same thing. If we're not careful, we allow what is inside of us to make us self-righteous and that's not God's plan when you stay prayed up close to God you speak into the chaos that he was talking about earlier you speak into the chaos sometimes the chaos is right here we have to speak into it the prayer we have to keep soft and, and humble before God because without the humility that goes along Jesus, I, I, I've quoted this a lot recently he was meek and he was lowly and when we become, we become big in our, in our own eyes, when we become like we think we're special because, you know, God's got some kind of special dispensation for us because of who we are. And, you know, don't talk to me. Don't, don't lower myself to your level at all. Then we, we fail to be evangelistic. So, the Jewish nation, again, was it... Let, let, let me be a little further with this. Paul concluded that all both Jew and Gentile have sinned and are thereby subject to condemnation and future judgment. However, the, the remedy for the elimination of sin was not the law of Moses, for the law only made a person aware of his sin. Salvation could not come through mere obedience to the law because the law could not remove mankind's sinful past. The elimination of the debt of sin would come only by the grace of God made possible through the death of the sacrificial Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Peter also contended... And that salvation was through Jesus Christ, not through the works of the law. In Acts 15, verse 11, 
Jesus, Paul, and Peter did not suggest that the righteous commands of the law should be forsaken, rather that they asserted mere, or rather they asserted that mere obedience to the laws of God still could not bring salvation. Only an act of God's grace accomplishes this. Paul declared, "Do we make void?" Actually, uh, uh, should be Romans uh, 3, 1 through 4. Let it bring it up. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid, yea, we establish the law. What advantage then hath a Jew, or the, what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. Talking of the Jews. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid, yea, let God be true and every man a liar. As it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. Look at this. Does it make any difference whether you believe or not? That's what he's speaking to the Jews. Whether you believe Jesus is Messiah or not, it's not going to change a fact. And it's the same whatever it is. Whether you believe that, that, that something in here applies to you or doesn't apply to you, it doesn't make any difference. It's still there and it applies to all of us. All of us. And so we can't, we can't, because we don't believe it, change it. It's still there. How then can one who has sinned ever be justified before God? Because are not sin stains? Irreversible, kind of like a permanent marker. We find the answer to these questions through a greater understanding of the grace of God. Paul explained more of the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did what? Abound that much more. So regardless of how bad the sin in your life is and how much you think you're stained and how much that the devil tries to bring back your past, grace abounds much more than the sins of the past. In the Old Testament, there were seven major Jewish feasts. Three of these feasts, listen to this, man, were required that all Jewish males attend. And those three was Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. And all three of these feasts were precursors of the New Testament salvation. Essential to the Passover feast was the lamb that was slain and eaten. As the Jewish participants uh, ate the meal, they reflected on the death. At death angels sparing or passing over the Israelites when he slew the firstborn in the Egypt or Egyptian households. The death of the lamb was in lieu of the death of the Jewish people for their sins. And John the Baptist later prepared the way for this event to be associated with the plan for mankind's redemption. When he proclaimed of Jesus, he said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world, in John 1.29. It's not coincidental that Jesus was crucified at the time of the Passover. He was a spotless, sinless lamb that God ordained to pay for mankind's debt of sin. The Feast of Tabernacles reminded the Israelites that God did not forget them during their wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. The attendees of this feast performed the ritual where they waved branches bound together and recited a prayer from the Psalms, Hoshana, translated, Please Save Us. Look at Psalm 118, 25, and 26 coming up behind me. It's significant that this is, is what the people cried out to Jesus when he rode into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey. Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. Now, now I want you to understand something. I want you to understand something. When they were throwing the palm leaves down before Jesus, when he was riding in Jerusalem before his crucifixion, this is exactly what they were thinking of. They recognized him for who he was. Hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands, recognized him to be the Messiah. And 
they were throwing these, saying these very same words to him. But yet just a day or two later, they were crying, crucify him. It's a difference between people that are spirit-filled and people that are not. Now, that during this feast, the priests performed, the, again, the unique ritual where they drew water from the pool of uh, Siloam and, and carried it ceremoniously to the temple. Nehemiah 3.15, Isaiah uh, 8 and 6, and John 3, uh, sorry, John 7.37-39 all speak of this. The observers of this joyous celebration quoted Isaiah 12.1-3. If you would get that for me, Isaiah 12.1-3. The Feast of Tabernacles was considered by some to be the most joyous of all Jewish celebrations, for it included various musical instruments, much dancing. It was at this feast that Jesus cried out, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the Scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. The Feast of, of, of Tabernacles, this was great. And, and in that day, thou shalt say, O Lord. Now, this is what they were saying. And they shall say, I will praise thee, thou that was angry with me. Thine anger is turned away and thou comfortest me behold God is my salvation I will trust and not be afraid for the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song he also has become my salvation therefore with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation and they would take that water and pour it upon the altar and this was Jesus sitting in the back and he jumps up and he says if any man thirsts when they were doing this let him come unto me and drink he was letting them know that he fulfilled this this is the whole point. Grace fulfilled everything that the Old Testament commanded to be fulfilled. Every law, Jesus fulfilled this through grace. Are you understanding this? This is what grace is all about. It's the fact that I can stand before you on this platform right now and preach and teach what I'm doing because of the grace of God that you have the opportunity to listen to it and to internalize it and hide it away in your heart. That is the grace of God. You can act on it and let God do something in your life here this morning. That is the grace of God. All you have to do to tie into it is just simply believe the word of God as it it is preached. If you will believe it and by faith you can take a key and you can open up grace in your life like you never thought ever existed before. Aren't you glad you know the truth? Aren't you glad that grace came down one day? Aren't you glad that grace and mercy is still relevant today? Praise God. Feast of Pentecost celebrated 50 days after the Passover feast and coinciding with the time when Moses received the law at Sinai. And that time, and the time of the grain harvest as well. And this feast is spiritually significant because both the law of Moses and and food are synonymous in the life-sustaining process. Food sustains a physical life. The Word of God sustains spiritual life. Jesus is the Word of God, and He is the bread of life. God chose the time of the feast of Pentecost to fill mankind with the Holy Spirit. The new birth message is consistent with all three major Old Testament feasts. The death of the Lamb of God occurred at the time of the Passover feast. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit came at the Feast of Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit baptism fulfilled prophecy regarding the Feast of Tabernacles. You can see that in Ezekiel 36, 25. 
Therefore, the death of Christ was not a random act of God, but it perfectly planned it to coincide with the Old Testament Scriptures. Furthermore, it was simple yet, yet beautiful plan whereby the sinless God incarnate would die and His grace would recompense our debt of sin through His death. And though we all have sinned, we are now justified or declared righteous in the eyes of God. He sees the suffering, His suffering, He sees His suffering and death as sufficient to pay our debt of sin. You see, all of us, none of us, none of us would be worthy of heaven had he not done what he did. None of us would be worthy of what of this wonderful plan of salvation, being able to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gives the utterance, going down in the wonderful name of Jesus, having our sins all remitted, if it was not what he did on the cross and coming out of the tomb. Are you hearing me? That purchased grace, grace now, rests over us, and we tap into it for wonderful gifts that God is given unto us. Paul proclaimed, the wages of sin is death, Romans 6, 23. There was no human way mankind could reverse his condemnation. Only an act of God could redeem us from the curse of sin, which was death and damnation. Just as the written law was the strength of sin, God's word is the strength of grace. As sin requires death, the gift of God through grace to mankind provides eternal life. This is the doctrine of grace. Grace has the power to reign in our lives and give us eternal life. Paul referred to his personal experience as an example of the sufficiency of God's grace. Anyone can receive God's gift of salvation and minister to others through the gifts of the Spirit. You see that in 1 Timothy 1, 12-16, Romans 12, 1-8. And because... He zealously persecuted the church. Paul was the least likely candidate for salvation. So he experienced this great grace of salvation, and grace continued to work in his life after his miraculous conversion. God used his life in mighty ways to minister to believers and to take the gospel to the Gentile world. Here was a man who killed Christians for for a living, if you would. That's what he did. That's what he enjoyed doing. And here great grace entered into his life on the road to Damascus. Why then? Why then can any one of us ever think that God could never do something in our life? When, they could, when God could do something with someone like the Apostle Paul, then why can't God do the same thing through us who have done much less, much less? I don't know too many of you before you came to God that went out and killed Christians. You might have made fun of them. The only reason anybody laughs at a Christian is because they want to be one. Keep that in mind. You don't do that anymore. You know, you used to back... back about 15, 20 years ago, you have people come into church every so often and laugh. You don't have that anymore. It kind of bothers me. I used to see people, you know, sit in the back and laugh at everybody worshiping God, you know, and, and I'd say, God, you know, send an angel back there and nail him or something. And he would. And I used to have more fun with that. Or, I, you know, say, God, let somebody get right next to him and start dancing, and God do that, too. You know, you put somebody right next to him, and, you know, you see all that, all that, that, that laughing kind of go by the wayside. They kind of look over, you know. But you don't see that anymore. It's because we're accepted. Because a lot of churches worship like we do, even though they don't have the truth. You'd be surprised. Kind of common. So you don't get people laughing at Pentecostals anymore. More accepted in the main line. I'm not sure that's a good thing. Maybe some people believe it, but I'm not so sure. So how often have we heard someone make this statement? You know what? Grace, grace, grace gives us power. 
to live a holy life. And, and how often have you heard someone say, I would be a Christian if I knew I could live it. You ever heard that? Huh? I would be a Christian if I knew I could live it. That's like saying, I'd send my kid to school when he learns to read. Any more is about that bad. Well, we won't go there. But You know, you, you, someone, Jesus himself said the sick need a physician. You come to church because you're sick. <laughs> really. Spiritually sick, so you come so that God can fix you. You come so the Word can come to you and fix you and open your eyes and open your heart and realize things are going to be okay and that you can make it to heaven and you have a chance to live right and you can do this. You look around you and you see people who have had the same problems and same difficulties and same dilemmas that you've had, but they make it through. You see people sitting next to you that, that you maybe don't understand or know even what's going on at home, but they're still joyful and they still rejoice and they still have peace in their heart. That's the wonderful thing about the church. And when we lose that joy, when you lose that worship, then you've lost everything because I've got to have that joy. I've got to have that peace in my heart. God help us. Don't ever quit worshiping. Don't ever quit running the aisles. Don't ever quit dancing. Don't ever quit jumping. Don't ever quit shouting. Because there's somebody next to you that's got a bad situation and they need to know that there's somebody that is willing to get out there and worship regardless of what's going on. Praise God. It is God's grace that saves us and afterward teaches and enables us to live holy lives. Titus 2.11 tells you that, 11 through 14. Peter taught that the grace of God which imparts salvation to us is a means of maintaining a holy life. Ten times in his epistle, he used the word grace and concluded his second epistle with these words. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Second Peter 3.18. So he says it's only through grace can we live holy lives. Grace is perhaps the first energy that comes to us from God and brings to us a measure of faith whereby we can respond to God. And Paul admonished Timothy that he should discover strength in the grace of Jesus Christ in 2 Timothy 2.1. At our very best, our personal strength is insufficient to please God. Therefore, we must rely on the grace of Jesus Christ to enable us to overcome sin, discouragement, and the persecution that comes from the world and Satan. And Peter encouraged the believer to, to walk according to the lifestyle that Jesus Christ exemplified, 1 Peter 4, 1 through 3. However, he explained that the believer's sufficient strength could come through grace, uh, through the grace of God in 1 Peter 4, 10. So we see this is some of the great areas of grace. I, I'm going to jump through get some other areas uh, of this. Uh, you know, our common greeting today varies with the, the time of day and and from our in, uh, from informal or from informal with friends to formal with strangers, and almost all New Testament writers of the epistles begin their letters with a pronouncement of God's grace. Such greetings as "Grace be with you," "Grace and peace be multiplied unto you," or "Grace and mercy unto you" were common. The early church was well aware that it was the grace of God that had saved them, and it was His grace that would keep them through temptation and tribulations. And this greeting was a, a reminder of how they were saved. It was a common 
common bond among them all, and all had sinned, but all had experienced God's grace. And furthermore, it was an affectionate greeting of goodwill among believers and also carried the authority of blessings bestowed upon the receiver of the epistle. In fact, in his first epistle, Peter referred to his readers as being strangers scattered in 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2. This is, this is good. How this, this comes about, you need to read this sometime, 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2. This, this may have been a reference to the dispersion because of, of the... Uh, of their Jewish nationality. However, he was quick to point out that they were not strangers from one another, for they had a common denominator as the elect or chosen of God. And the Apostle's second epistle referred to them as those of like precious faith, Second Peter 1, 1 and 2. They all experienced a common salvation rather than a hodgepodge of religion. He said, no matter where you are and you're dispersed, we've all got one thing in common. We are a child of God, and we've all gone through this wonderful experience of the new birth. That is the one thing, regardless of who you are. You still, and, and, and it's a shame that we, none of us can, that, that we can't understand that more. That we, we look at people, and we, we should be able to see people and know that they are like us and be able to, regardless of whether strangers or not, we still ought to be able to fellowship with them because we are all brothers and sisters because we have come through that common salvation a wonderful experience and this is what peter was saying the believers were not divided by national boundaries nor were they divided into jews and gentiles they were the family of believers worldwide because salvation was wrought by god's grace and they are one family by his grace the apostle was at liberty to write these instructional letters to them regarding how they should live the grace of god was the same for all and therefore should initiate similar lifestyles certainly as god's grace works in our hearts the evidence of that work is reflected in the way that we live Peter explained that the outcome of God's grace working in our lives is the giving of great and precious promises. At a glance, we may credit these promises to God's power, but a closer examination of Scripture reveals that if a scriptural promises are ultimately the result of God's grace. So whatever promises God gives us, it's because of God's grace. It is because of His grace. You know, we are, we are multiplied in the salvation of of our children and the grace of God does not diminish with time or usage. Isn't that wonderful? Regardless of how many people are saved worldwide, how many people are saved in this church, wherever it may be, it doesn't may, does not diminish the grace of God. The supply doesn't get less because I expect God to save my grandchildren, and I expect if He if the Lord tarries another forty fifty years, I expect that to continue. I expect to continue. Grace does not diminish. I don't believe we'll have another 40 or 50 years. I don't believe we've got another 10 years. But on the other side of it, I don't know. And I'll be so naive as to stand up here and tell you otherwise. But regardless of how much time we have, God never lessens His grace. I believe people will be speaking in tongues as the Spirit gives the utterance the seconds before the rapture of the church. Now, that's just what I believe in my heart because that's how much God loves us. I don't want to take that chance to be the last one to do it. But on the other side of things, that's just how much God loves us. That's why we continue to preach this word. That's why we continue to love God. That's why we continue to, to work and to experience this wonderful grace. Grace is not something that just brought you into salvation. Grace is something that you grow into. I believe grace brings more wisdom to you. The Bible says grow in grace and the wisdom and knowledge of God. Grace brings more wisdom to you. You understand God's ways a little bit more perfectly as you grow in grace. I have to grow every day in grace. 
I have to experience more knowledge, more understanding. I'm certainly not the same person I was 24 years ago. Thank God. I'm not the same person. I hope I'm a little bit smarter. I understand just a little bit more. And I hope if there's another 10 years left that I can change even more. I'm never going to change in my relationship with God as far as my knowledge of worship and love and study. But there is no knowledge of Him that I can put in. You know, it, it's something when I raise my hands, when I, when the, the times I run the aisle or whether I dance or jump, whatever. When, when, you know, it's a lot different now than what it was then. It was an exuberance that I had and a zeal that I had for God. And that's not diminished. But now it's a zeal with more knowledge than I ever have. I know how much that He loves for me to worship Him. I know how much that He enjoys me giving myself totally and completely to Him. It doesn't matter what someone thinks. It doesn't matter what someone says. It doesn't matter to me. The fact remains that I want to please Him. And whether anybody else in the world wants to or not, this man is going to constantly please God because of the grace that was given me so many years ago. Let's give him a hand clap as you stand with me. Never let anyone take away from you something as wonderful as what we have in him. Don't let anybody set you down, per se, in your worship, your adoration towards God. Don't you ever let anybody do that. You're, forgive me, the Bible says call no man a fool. I'm not calling you a fool, but you're foolish if you do. Pretty close. Men come to, or sorry, minister, preachers. I need a preacher's meeting in my office tonight. 5.30, we're going to come in there and we're going to pray with you. I want to talk to you about some, uh, some things that are up and coming as far as our... our our house fellowship meetings we're going to start on the 16th I think it's this Friday uh, and some of the ministers will be uh, everything is set for this one but later on some of the preachers are going to be doing some of this I just want to talk to you about that and uh, some other things that we just need to discuss so all the preachers and those of you that see anybody that's not in here please let them know uh, they'll be at 5.30 in my office all right Lord bless you. Let's raise our hands to the Lord one more time. Thank Him for His goodness and His mercy. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you've done. We thank you, Lord, for every blessing. And I pray you would touch us, be with us, and strengthen us. In Jesus' name, amen. Men also downstairs to pray. I know a lot of the preachers won't be there.